Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fiona Narduzzi, an editor at the TLS. And as ever, Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hello. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Before we launch into this week's show, I'd like to take a moment for us to agree that Libby Purvis's review in this week's issue of Maiden Voyages, Women in the Golden Age of Transatlantic Travel, uh, a book by Sean Evans, is just brilliant. Yes, I can't really say no, can I? This, that's like, <laughs> I mean, quite I, a build-up, I've given it. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to take a moment to agree. <laughs> to disagree now, with you. Well, happily, I do agree with you. It is brilliant <laughs> and full of brilliant women. It is. It just, it seems like one of those pieces that just sends you off in, in all sorts, your mind just goes off in all sorts of different directions, introduces you to so many lives and stories that you just want to hear more about. Evans mentions a German girl who in 1922 lay under piles of gravel in the hold of this ship, eating black bread and sausages until she judged it uh, to be mid-ocean and then she hammered to be to be let out. <laughs> she says her poverty and the fact that before the war she had worked as a stewardess got her support and she made it to the new life. It basically no, you're, it's, you're cheering her on, aren't you? Exactly. And, exactly. And it's just this very, you know, very common sense point that Libby Purvis makes where she just says aeroplanes are newcomers um, to our our world and our kind of social structures. You know, it was ships that that shaped the world, that enabled the great migrations, the mm. mixing of cultures, the changing of destinies, and that spanned all of the classes. From from the very bottom, when she says the uh, what they called steerage, which I didn't realise meant that you actually couldn't ever go out on deck. That really did mean that you stayed below the whole time and looked out of little windows. Exactly. Um, right up to the top, which is terribly posh. I like the the story about. Um, one of the stewards, I think, in the age of prohibition, basically everybody was asking the ship's crew to smuggle booze on for them. And um, one of them, it says, one ample bosom stewardess found she could carry off a quart of champagne in her balcony. <laughs> and no customs official, however hard boiled, had the nerve to tap the offending bottle with his little metal mallet. <laughs> she sounds formidable, doesn't she? She does. She does. It sounds brilliant. There's also the unsinkable stewardess Violet Jessup. They all have excellent names, of they course, do just because everyone names. did in those days, I think. Tallulah yeah. Bankhead yeah. Um, and Josephine Baker, of course. And they were and going in the opposite direction to other people who were sort of seeking to climb up the social scale, the, up the social ladder, you know, to, to make a new life that was perhaps more exciting and freer than stuffy old Edwardian Britain. Well, and Josephine Baker, she went from the States to Europe. Exactly. Paris yeah. found freedom there. Yeah, you're right. It, 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 it worked both ways, didn't it? Exactly. Can I just pick out the best name, I think, which is Edith Sauerbots? It's so good. Yeah. People just did have better names in those days, I think. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there. People have to go and seek out the piece if they want to know anything more about Edith Sauerbots. Good point. How's that? How's that for a trail? <laughs> <laughs> Um, coming up on this week's show, as new translations appear, Joseph Farrell revisits the life and work of Gian Nidodari, one of Italy's best loved inventors of fairy tales, whose oeuvre combines a strong political spine with the most vivid flights of imagination. We'll also be catching up on news from France, where this year's Prix Goncourt, delayed but not stopped by the pandemic, has just been awarded to the novelist Hervé Letellier. But first, Lucy, we are marking 250 years since the birth of a great composer. We are indeed. 
Ask almost anyone to name a great composer and the response will be the same. Possibly Mozart will squeak in ahead now and then, possibly Bach, but much more often Beethoven, Beethoven, Beethoven. So says Paul Griffiths in his splendid piece on the composer this week, All You Need to Know About Beethoven in 2020, taking in umpteen books published this year, which is the great man's 250th birthday year. Paul is a novelist, librettist and music critic, and we're delighted that he's talking to us today. Paul, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You start your piece by contrasting this anniversary with one 50 years ago, and there's an odd kind of echo, isn't there, with this year? Well, there is indeed, yes, because 50 years ago, 1970, when we were celebrating Beethoven's 200th birthday, a composer, Argentinian-German composer Mauricio Cargill, said the best way to commemorate Beethoven during this year would be to have a moratorium on performances. And it seemed at the time, for those of us who were around back then, totally ridiculous that you would you would have no Beethoven performances for an entire year. Well, of course, uh, not only have we had no Beethoven performances since uh, March or maybe even February, uh, there's been very little live music going on anywhere. So we are suddenly in the situation of of the music being taken away from us. Of course, we have recordings, but live music, for those of us who are in the habit of going to concerts and so on, is just a completely different experience. Yeah, and, and as you say in the piece, it's possible that Cargill suggested it as a way of uh, as a way of sort of cleansing our ears of what we think about him and then coming back afresh. And so I suppose the only possible upside you could think of would be that this year you know people will absolutely well people will pounce on on any sort of live music but they will pounce on the Beethoven wasn't weren't they because there were so many wonderful things planned that weren't able to happen yes yes and and I think back in 1970 what Cargill was was pointing at was the kind of routine veneration of, of Beethoven as, as a great composer without really thinking too much about it without really thinking well what makes the music great? What, why has it um, been so important to so many people for, for all this time? And continuously, I mean, right from when Beethoven was alive, Beethoven was really the first composer who uh, his, his reputation has been unbroken. You know, when, when Mozart died, the music died with him for a couple of decades until it really started coming back into performance in the early 19th century. But Beethoven has been the number one for, for all this time. Um, let's let's jump into the many, many books you reviewed. Um, um, some of the, the major ones are the conversation books, which are there's a huge project and a very important one. Can you tell us what they are and what they tell us about him? Well, this is, a, a, as you say, a, a major, major project and, and one of the great achievements of scholarship in our time, it's it's being trans not only translated, but edited and very, very thoroughly annotated by Theodore Albrecht. Beethoven, when he started to go really deaf, he carried with him little notebooks. And if he wanted to have a conversation with somebody, he would um, have them write down their questions draw a line and he would then reply. So basically in these conversation books we have one side of the conversation and the person who's not not speaking, the person whose words we can't see because they are only spoken is Beethoven himself. So to that extent it's it's slightly frustrating but at the same time it takes you right into a room in a tavern or maybe a room in, in one of Beethoven's apartments with him having conversations with people. And sometimes you can see what he might have said in reply. But, but quite apart from that, he used having these booklets with him, he would use them for shopping lists. If he was passing a bookshop window, he might note down a title or two. If he's in a uh, coffee house looking at the newspaper, he'll note down a, an advertisement, maybe for a servant or for new lodgings. So we're close into Beethoven in his everyday domestic life. And the, the beauty of the conversation books as Theodore Albrecht has brought them to us is that half the page is full of footnotes. So you find out how far Beethoven had walked 
from his apartment to whatever coffee house, you find out which bookshop is still in 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 still exists in Vienna. So you're but really walking in his footsteps there. You are walking in his footsteps. There's that nice um, bit from it that you quote, and there's a that, that, so what you get is a kind of answer to something from a friend or part of a conversation, and you've you've uh, you've quoted it. it. Says, "I also believe it is on account of his slightly imperfect insight." Full stop. Pegs. Full stop. Yeah. Because he's not very bright. <laughs> and yes. The fun of making, as you say, the fun of making up the other half of that conversation. It makes it very real, very human. Like a you know brings it close to us. Exactly. And at the same time, you're being brought up against the fact of Beethoven's deafness is what makes these conversation books essential to him. So there's a a, a kind of um, melancholy in, in there as well. But the, the, the being close to Beethoven, I, I felt more strongly in these books than in reading his letters, say, where, of course, a letter is prepared for a certain purpose. Uh, here, it's all off the cuff. Um, and if you if we stay with that that closeness and that attempt to be close to his life and his emotional life, you also talk about there's been a lot of time and effort spent trying to work out the identity of the immortal beloved who he he, he wrote this famous letter that we think was never sent and for whom I think um, correct me if I'm wrong he wrote that he wrote the song cycle Andy Fernigadibta, which was very very influential on later composers. Paul, do we do you think we know who it was and does it really matter? It matters that there was one. It matters that he, throughout his life, whether there was one, and the the new biography that we talk about in this piece by, I probably mispronounced his name, Jan Kayers, Flemish writer. Uh, this new bi biography, Kayers takes a, a very clear position that the immortal beloved was uh, Josephine von Brunswick uh, throughout a period of, of 20 years from the, the late 1790s up to the time of, of her death and that Beethoven um, worshipped her sometimes closely, but much more often from afar. Whether that's true or not, he certainly had a, a habit of falling in love with young women from the minor aristocracy. And why should he not? I mean, these people came to him for piano lessons there. He is sitting up against them on, on the piano bench, probably playing alongside them. Um, it's absolutely made for a romance. Uh, but of course, he was unable to marry any of these people because of the very, very strict class demarcations in, in Vienna at the time. It would, a young woman would have completely destroyed her social position she'd married a, a composer no matter how venerated by the entire populace so he never married and you get the feeling that though he was drawn by these women of course he actually was happy not to be married he he was married to his music he was married to the whole business of of writing of being able to to, to live a rather haphazard tumble down existence and concentrate on what was going on in his head. You discuss a brief history of Beethoven biographies, Beethoven's Lives by yes. Lewis Lockwood, um, in which Lockwood quotes Carl Dahlhauser's view that biography runs along beside the interpretation of the work without making any important intervention in it, um, which is a really interesting way of looking at it. But I mean, isn't, it, isn't, it, isn't that quite unusual? The 20th century and I think particularly the 21st century have seemed to encourage the connection of life and art more than ever. It seems odd that Beethoven should have escaped that. Well, Lewis Lockwood does say that Karl Dahlhaus actually didn't abide by his own principle. And I think it would be very, very difficult to, to imagine that one didn't know anything about the composer Beethoven and could just look at the music and how, how the musical structure and, and expression went without thinking about the composer. I think it's totally impossible, but uh, Dahlhaus was writing at a time in the second half of the last century when there was a much stricter atmosphere, if you like, that, that one shouldn't be sidetracked by the irrelevant. Mm. And now I think we, we 
we rather think that everything's relevant. Um, <laughs> and there, there are no sidetracks. Anywhere can, can lead you to, to more understanding. And certainly, the more we know about Beethoven's life and the more we follow him from day to day in the conversation books or read his story in these biographies, the, the closer I think we come to the music as well. There's another way of, of getting close to him um, that that one of these people is trying that you write about, which is trying to hear the way he did. There's another, actually Flemish as well, a musician, Tom um, Beguin, who, who does this. Um, can you tell us about that? Yes, uh, we know that Beethoven had some kind of machine to help him hear his piano. And that's all we know. We don't have any drawings. We don't have any description. But something was built so that he would have a better chance of hearing the, the piano. And um, this musician, whose name I won't attempt, has had three different machines built and made recordings of the last three sonatas, one sonata with each machine. And in his sleep, well, the, the, the recordings are fascinating to hear for how the music is, is changed by the reverberation within these various devices. I mean, one, uh, I think of particularly, it's like half a giant ice cream cone placed on top of a, of a grand piano um, with the big end up towards the keyboard, sort of like a horn um, amplifying the piano sound. And that does make a very striking effect but he talks also about the visual effect of this curve and whether Beethoven actually in writing the uh, Opus 111 sonata might have been influenced by what he was seeing uh, as, as well as what he was hearing which is a fascinating idea. Because as he was working he was looking at, at the machine the whole time. Yeah and there we have the life coming right into the music in a very clear precise way. Yeah. Um, we also, in, in, in these books, as you say, in the conversation books and some of these others, we see into his professional life and uh, some of the kind of nuts and bolts of how it worked. Uh, for instance, the unusually long time he had to rehearse and prepare the Eroica, um, which occupies such a huge place in his work and in wider history. Um, I'm going to ask you an impossible question, really, but can you sort of outline why it occupies such a huge place in his work and in history? Well, the Eroica, I mean, from, from its the, the name, which he gave it, famously dedicated, he dedicated it in the first place to Napoleon Bonaparte, but then scratched out the dedication. But he gave it the name Sinfonia Eroica, Heroic Symphony, uh, because it has this heroic uh, sense. It has this, this, this sense of stamina and growth and achievement and power. From, from beginning to end. And it seems to tell a, a heroic story, which strangely goes from uh, a, an opening, very full first movement into a funeral march. So half the symphony comes after the, the hero's death. It was important because it was virtually twice as long as symphonies had been in Haydn's time. It lasts, depending on, on how many repeats you do for between three quarters of an hour and, and an hour. And it also has, apart from this heroic narrative, it has what I would call a voice. You have the feeling that somebody is speaking to you, speaking in this language of music. And I don't feel that we have that with really any music before Beethoven, feeling a, a kind of voice. That was the beginning, really, of what we call Beethoven's heroic period with the Fourth and Fifth Symphonies and uh, Fidelio, and suddenly a, a move away from the 18th century in which he'd been brought up. I mean, he was over the age of 30. We're, we're thinking about 1770 as his birthday. He was over the age of 30, but the 19th century begin, he began. He was a man of the 18th century. He, he had got to be Beethoven by a profound and lengthy study of Haydn and Mozart, studying Haydn with Haydn. And now with the Eroica, he takes a determined step away from that. I was just gonna say in the sense of the voice speaking to you, it's not, because I know there are there are kind of arguments about narrative in music, you know, about whether it's telling a story. It's not that, it's not that the voice is telling you what's happening. It's that you can feel the presence of a voice telling you something of, of a, a person behind it, as it were, if that's not too fanciful. Right. Yes. 
Yeah, or a person in it. And of course, it can be it can be saying three or four different things at the same time. There's an interesting point as well um, you make about a kind of an irony that becomes involved. The way that it unfolds um, raises questions about the symphony's self-declared heroism, uh, inviting us to hear tones of resignation and humility, which sort of implies that there's a, a moral message in the music. It's like a lesson in humility or, or in, well, accepting mortality and, and failure somehow. And he's making the whole orchestra go through this process. Yes, and the, the heroic achievement in the finale, where we have this wonderful set of, of, of variations, that you've, you've got to um, some, some kind of point of, of reconciliation and joy, abounding joy, but at the same time, the joy is tinged with what had to be lost to get there. Um, and I, I've just said that the voice can, can say three or four different things at the same time, it can speak in counterpoint, but it, it can far more effectively than even the greatest actor can express three or four contradictory emotions at the same time. So it can express bounding joy, joy that, that fills you and at the same time regret and, uh, and failure and a sense of, of death round the edges. Um, and you say that actually now we, we perceive Beethoven as actually sort of less heroic and um, you um, attribute a lot, quite a lot of that to historically informed performance and you say that we can find him now to be lighter and nimbler, more varied and funnier. Why, why is this and why is it not mentioned much, do you think? It's very strange that um, we have here several monographs and we have several symposia. And I, 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 I was puzzled that, that very, very little is said about Beethoven's humor. And that's, that's an, I mean, Thea, Thea just talked about irony, that, that that's there in so many Beethoven pieces, along with the joy and the power and the heroism and, and, and the certainty. Um, there, the Eighth Symphony is a, is a perfect example of this, that, that it is, it's a relatively short symphony coming after a period ushered in by the Eroica of massive symphonies, massive not only in length, but in strength. And the Eighth Symphony is a kind of return to the 18th century dimensions but after all that so it's the the old conventions can be brought back again as as jokes uh, in an ironic way do you think it's a move away from that perception of him as only being very grand and the author of these yeah. huge symphonic pieces and which have to have an enormous orchestra which is making a lot of sound and actually goes quite slowly and actually there's a lot of these very nimble pieces which are much lighter on their feet and if you have fewer people playing them or you know pieces which might have been considered not very important or even trifling but are actually full of life and interest and fun even you raised some interesting topics there Lucy particularly about what Beethoven is, what we regard as the important Beethoven. Laura Tunbridge, in her book, Beethoven in Nine Pieces, starts out with the septet, which is a piece that's not madly valued these days. But in Beethoven's time, it was the popular Beethoven piece, uh, largely because a lot of music making was in people's homes and you could get together a group of friends and, and, and play this, this piece. Now we would regard this as, as very much minor. Uh, but also, we, we have our own prejudices. We value the symphonies and the concertos and, uh, and the opera and the string quartets and the piano sonatas. We maybe don't listen so much to the sets of piano variations. Uh, we certainly don't listen to so much to Beethoven's songs, which are extraordinary output that is very much undervalued. So, there are lots of Beethovens there, uh, some of which we know very well and some of which uh, are hidden away. Mm. And, and in fact, you've been living with him a lot recently, haven't you, Paul? Because not least because your most recent novel, which was 
shortlisted for the Goldsmith Prize, and this is the book we haven't mentioned yet, but here we go. That's yeah. about an afterlife that you've imagined for him. Do you feel like you've had enough, Beethoven, for now, or do you think <laughs> that will never be the case? Thank you for mentioning the novel. That was great fun to do, and it imagines Beethoven having a, a few years' life and fulfilling a commission he actually had for an oratorio to be performed in Boston in the United States. Um, but yes, uh, maybe I have to leave Beethoven aside, not in terms of listening to Beethoven, but um, in terms of, uh, of reading about Beethoven after 5,000 odd pages and, and writing about it. Well, it's, it's, it's very much, it's our gain that you did all of that. So thank you very much for the piece and for talking to us. Still to come on the show, news on France's most revered literary award, the Prix Goncourt, belatedly bestowed just a few days ago, and the life and work of Gianni Rodari, a kind of George Orwell figure transplanted to Neverland, who seems finally to be finding much-deserved English readers. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi here with Lucy Dallas. And before we get to Gianni Rodari's 20th century Italian Neverland, we'll stop off in modern day France. Lucy, you're going to fill us in on literary goings on there. The Prix Goncourt has finally been announced. Yes, it has. And it's a bit unusual this year because they delayed it. Usually uh, it's announced earlier in November, I think the 13th, though I'm actually not sure about that. But because of the lockdown, they didn't want to um, deprive the bookshops of the sales that would happen. It's unusual, the Goncourt. I think it's not It's not like our prizes because it's not very much money. I think it's 10 euros, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, the same amount that it was when it was set up in 1903. But it basically guarantees huge sales for the winner, really big sales. You become a bestseller. And they didn't want to, they, they did basically, the French didn't want all those sales to go to Amazon. They wanted them, they wanted people to go to the bookshop. So they waited until um, this Monday, just gone the 30th, and they announced the winner then. And Solidarity. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's Hervé Letellier, who is, I think, the president of Oulipo. Um, and his novel L'Anomalie, uh, which I've read unusually. <laughs> I haven't always read the, pre, the the winner of the Goncourt. It is an amazing book. It's an amazing feat. It's, it's a thought experiment. I, I mean, I don't know whether I would have thought this if I hadn't known he was president of Ulipo because they like doing experiments. I don't want to give too much away, but it's an experiment about what would happen if some of the kind of slightly wilder 
edges of um, particle physics and time and space loops, things like that, if they just happened here, about how how people would deal with them. And it's about the ramifications of that. And if that sounds a bit scientific and theoretical, it isn't because it actually follows the people that it happens to. And it's, it does, it's, does it does it make does it all happen on a on a plane? Yeah, there is. Yes, there is a plane. There, there is a plane. <laughs> it's about the people on the plane and what happens to the plane and what happens to the people in it. And it's very funny and it's also quite dark and it, it's pretty daring. It goes all, all around the world. It's got a, it's satirical. It's got a president who is pretty much recognisable as Donald Trump. Um, there's a brilliant bit when he has to talk to the uh the leaders of uh, France and China and talk to them about this thing that's happened. And he's like, oh, God, do I have to? Really, do I have to? And they're like, yes, Mr. President, you do. He's like, France, really? Do I have to talk to that guy? I hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and when the scientists are talking to him about what's happened, he just is not, he, he, he doesn't get it at all. And has, um, it, been, has it been well received as, um, as a winner? Because of, often the Goncourt is, is you know, steeped in, uh, it's steeped in tradition, but it's also steeped in controversy. It's almost traditional that it is controversial. Yeah, I mean, almost like any prize, isn't it? I don't think this one is is controversial. It's so, it's a really uh, refreshing and extraordinary book, and it's trying to come to terms with, um, you know, amazing things, which I think makes it a very good choice for this year. Um, other controversies um, they've had, obviously, there was the one when they awarded the uh, little-known um, firebrand Marcel Proust. <laughs> Was the criticism that he was too old? Was yeah, it? sort of. Yeah, and it was like, oh, why did you give it to him for that? And it was partly <laughs> he, he was quite old, but 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 he was. Uh, uh, it was early in his career. It's supposed uh. to be an early career award, as it were. I don't think it really is anymore, to be honest. It was set up as an early career award, um, and then they didn't give it to Céline for Voyage au bout de la nuit. Again, both of those both of those um, decisions look all right with with hindsight. They look pretty good. <laughs> Um, and then they awarded it twice, which you are not supposed to be able to do. And it's actually mentioned in the paper this week why that happened. Um, because Romain Gary won in the 50s for his book. I think it was Les Racines du Ciel, I think. And then after a while, Romain Gary got bored, wanted to try other things, you know, don't know quite why, but basically started writing under a pseudonym, but nobody knew this, really nobody knew this. And the pseudonym was Émile Ajar. And they published this book, La Vie Devant Soi, which we have a review of a, a film of it this week, uh, as Émile Ajar. And that won the Goncourt in the 60s or 70s. I think maybe sure, it's, I mean, it's not really his fault. It would be unfair to be um, angry with him. It's not like he was trying to be deceitful. <laughs> No, I think and no, I think he probably and he probably thought it was a great laugh. And he sent a, a relative of his along to sort of pose as Emile Lajar. And so everybody <laughs> thought that it was his relative. And it wasn't found out until he died. I think he wrote a note when when um after after his death, and there was a book, I think, published after his death saying, It was me, guys. He's a kind of amazing character, Romain Garret. Have you ever read any? No, I don't think so. Not knowingly. <laughs> you would know. It's really amazing. I haven't read enough, but there's one book, La Promesse de l'Aube, which is about his, uh, sort of about his early life and his mum. She's really, it's really wonderful. As for Le Tellier then, um, have we reviewed it? It sounds vaguely familiar, but I think that might just be because I'm thinking of another recent-ish French novel that was set on a plane um, by Noémie Lefebvre. I don't know. Um, what was that called? Blue Self-Portrait. Oh, I don't know about that one. Um, but a completely different novel, but also set on a plane. You can, oh. can tell that really stuck in my mind. Um, but have we have we reviewed L'Atelier? Are we are we planning to review it? We are going to review it. We have a very good review of it, which will appear in the TLS uh, in the next couple of weeks. Perfect. Well, there you have it. Uh, if I were allowed to hand out prizes, which thankfully I'm not, I would give one to Gianni Rodari, whose fairy tales are, in the child's eye, perfect works of pure, delightful nonsense. Only later, as adulthood approaches, is the reader of Rodari likely to realise that these stories are, for the most part, also sharp Marxist critiques of the society that they are a part of and will soon be expected to properly participate in. It's a balancing act that Rodari was destined to carry out for his whole life, which began in 1920 and ended in 1980. As a new English translation of one of his story collections appears, Telephone Tales, translated by Anthony Sugar, 
Our critic, Joseph Farrell, is, fittingly enough, on the line to tell us the story. Hi, Joseph. Good afternoon to you, Thea. Let's start with the story of Rodari's early life, because in many ways it, it defined the kind of literature that he was going to produce. Well, the intrigue, he was born in 1920 in Italy, which was a bad year to choose to be born in, because shortly after that, Mussolini came to power, which meant that uh, Rodari's boyhood and his early youth were spent under fascism. Now, he was not apolitical at all, and indeed he joined the resistance and fought with the partisans. So I do think that in some of his stories, although they are set in Wonderland and Elfland, and we do have a certain resonance from the conditions in fascist Italy. To continue that, he actually joined the Italian Communist Party and remained a member, as far as I'm aware, all his life. Um, well, yes, I mean, I wonder, because he was born specifically in northern Italy as well, and as you point out in your piece, uh, by the time he was in his early 20s, it was the end of the war, you know, the final few years when the north uh, of, of Italy was a very specific kind of battleground because there were there were the Germans, there were the there were the the the, the residua of the fascist uh, Italian government, you know, there was the puppet state, and there were the partisans, the partigiani. And so all of these things were kind of confronting each other. And I suppose in that crucible, he this very particular relationship that he has with story, with storytelling, uh, was formed, he can't have been, you know, you can't really ask to be made more often quite brutally aware of the relations of story to power, um, as well as the unreliableness of stories. It just seems like such a very, it's such a specific formation. That's right. Serious historians now distinguish almost three wars being fought in uh, Northern Italy at the time. Remember, the Allies had invaded from Sicily and come up about halfway up mainland Italy. So Northern Italy was a different situation. And as you were suggesting, there's almost three distinct wars. There's a resistance war against the invader. There's also a civil war against other Italians, those who had grouped around Mussolini, once again, who held sway over the north of Italy. And then also a social war, as it's called, when we would have a division of interest between right and left. Obviously, he was on the left. And then... Um, the astonishing thing about this man who's writing for children, who's writing tales of pure fantasy, is that at the same time, that is the presence of his political beliefs, which are very strong, subtly done, lightly done, very gently inserted, but nevertheless continually there, particularly in the ending of his stories when he reminds there could be a better world than this. He attended university, the Cattolica in Milan, but he left before, before getting his degree and he qualified as a teacher. And, and that is where Rodari, the writer, really starts to emerge, working with children. Uh, what, what were the theories? What were his theories about the fabrication of stories? Well, I'm not sure that he did actually qualify as a teacher. He certainly was allowed to teach, but he said he was very unsuccessful. And although his notions were taken up by uh, other people, he regarded himself as an unsuccessful teacher. And as a matter of fact, other educational theorists criticized him because he said the important thing was not to bore children. Now that's desirable, but there are some things which is important to learn, which may re require or may involve a certain tolerance of boredom. Anyway, what he did discover was, and what became utterly central to his thinking, was that he had an ability to invent stories, stories which were fantastic, and also an ability to stimulate the imagination of children. And that, I think, was his principal contribution, both as a writer and also as an educationalist. All throughout the rest of his life, he was a journalist, certainly, a print journalist with a couple of newspapers. He did write for the theatre. He did write um, poetry. He did do nursery rhymes and he wrote novels and stories for children. But he always enjoyed working with children. And many of his books, including the one that would seem less likely, the theoretical work called The Grammar of Fantasy, that actually came out of a series of meetings which he had in Emilia-Romagna, which was the communist area of Italy, out of a series of meetings he had with teachers and with children. So he discussed um, his various ideas with children 
And in some future occasions for some of his novels, the plot was developed, first of all, with children. He invited them to take certain ideas and to work them up in their own way. Then he went away and um, wrote it out as a story or as a novel. He sounds, can I just say, I know this was a while ago when he was doing that, but he sounds like a very modern, uh, the, a very kind of modern operator and thinker and, and encouraging the, ch- the children. I bet they loved him, especially if the important thing for him was never to be boring. I think they did love him. I think he established a very easy relationship with children and also with teachers. But certainly he was pushing up um, against recognised boundaries at that time. Um, He was working in Emilia-Romagna, as I said, which was the communist area, and possibly there was a flexibility there which you would not have found in other more traditional parts of Italy. But there are documentaries that are all kinds of film records of his working with the children and every indication that they loved him, that they were completely devoted to him. He gave them a lot, but also emphasised the fact that he took a lot from them. Part of his theory was that um, fantasy work does not come from one idea uh, alone. It requires two ideas clashing against each other. The Italian word is binomio, which we can translate as binary or as dualism. So one of his games was he would invite one child to come and write one word on one side of the board, and then another child who hadn't seen the first word to go and write a single word on the other side of the blackboard. So uh, one famous occasion, one child wrote dog, and the other child wrote cupboard. He put them together. What do you have? The dog in the cupboard, the dog on the cupboard, the dog under the cupboard. And he allowed the children to elaborate their own stories. He took many of the ideas. I I don't mean to say he was a plagiarist. His own imagination (laughs) was utterly unlimited. He took that and then then worked it up from there. Um, Il romanzo di Cipollino, um, which has, believe it or not, featured on this podcast more than once already. (laughs) because it was one of my favourite books growing up. Um, it's one of his earliest uh, and best-known works, certainly well, certainly in Italy, less so here. But tell us about that one. Yeah, it's strange just to pick up your point that he is not better known in this country, that he's only really being introduced now, um, 40 years after his death. You would have thought there was a very ready market um, in children's literature for that. Well, here we have... Look, one of, if I can digress just for a second, one of the things I hate is adults getting their hands on children's story, especially with Alice in Wonderland, and discovering all kinds of depth and subtleties which really are not necessarily there at all and which are not the things which are going to appeal above all to the and primarily to the child's imagination. But this story does lend it to discussion at various levels. We have a story of a kind of class war between the vegetables, cipollino, which in um, Italian means a little onion, the vegetables and the fruits. The fruits of the aristocracy, they live in the big palace. They are the people who are responsible for the oppression of the vegetables, not just the, not, not just the uh, onions. So the leader of the militia among the fruit is the layman, who is a cruel man attended by a variety of little lemons who are soldiers. They round up some of the rebellious vegetables, put them into dark dungeons. This makes it sound more serious than in fact it is. I mean, it's a very lightly and brightly told story. They're in a dungeon and are then rescued from uh, from there by a mole, um, a particularly grumbling uh, mole, this would make a wonderful pantomime. All <laughs> who's never altogether satisfied gets them out. But then we have a genuine rebellion. The proletariat, that's to say the vegetables, rebel against the cherries, the countess's cherry, who are the um, aristocracy who live in the palace. They rebel against them, throw them out, take over and declare a republic and put their flag flying. So on the one hand, we have exactly um, an imaginative story, highly imaginative, utterly inventive, a venture into fantasy. On the other hand, it's got something to say. I 
parallel this in some ways to Gulliver's Travels, although it's Gulliver's Travels in the reverse. Jonathan Swift wrote Gulliver's Travels as a political satire, and now it's taken as being a children's story, and the political elements to do with 18th century British politics are lost. On the other hand, with Rodari, he consciously put in various political, social, ethical elements, but lightly, brightly, and as I say, imaginatively, not in any way heavily um, Soviet-style, though he was very popular in Soviet Russia, puts these, th these things in very brightly and hopes that they will take seed in the minds of the children. There's one of the, one of the stories in particular... Um... Again, it was, well, as you said, he's not really had much of a life in the English language. The Grammar of Fantasy was translated in in the early 2000s for an academic audience, obviously. And then one of his shorts, um, in Italian it was called Cira due volte il barone Lamberto, and it's translated again by Anthony Sugar, um, who we'll come back to in a moment. Um, but it, it was translated as Lamberto, Lamberto, Lamberto. And the way he ends that story there, he basically says something like... Uh, I'm sure some readers will find the events here described to be uh, far too far-fetched. They won't believe them. Uh, but then I sort of challenge them to, to write their own endings to, to the story. Um, there's that really clear sense of him just passing the baton on to, on to his young readers. No, that's entirely true. I mean, the young leaders were to be involved at every stage. As I say, very often they were the initiators of the story, set it off in certain directions. But then... There's something of an open ending where they can write their own names, they can write in their own contribution, they can even take the story off in a slightly different direction if they wish. Mm. Um, the the title of that one that's is that that's once upon two times. Yeah, Tierra due volte, exactly. Yeah. Once upon two times. <laughs> Which is a brilliant. It just shows you immediately what he's doing. He's like, let's try two. Exactly. Um, and and I read. Uh, um, he was also a friend of Calvino, wasn't he? And, and, and Calvino was an admirer of his, and you, can, you could kind of see why. He was a friend of Calvino's. He was also a friend of Dario Fo. So when one of his other stories was made into an animated cartoon, Dario Fo did the voiceover. Um, and the connection between these two, who were both men of the left, as well as writers of fantasy, Faux much more politicised, I think, than Rodari was, um, is very interesting. Then with Calvino, who himself published um, well, works of fantasy, very much adult fantasy from the very beginning, even when he was talking about the resistance. And Calvino, too, fought with the partisans. Then later on, he edited um, a book of fairy stories, traditional fairy stories, and then did a more European book of works of fantasy, taking in writers of fantasy from different countries. There is a difference, however, or it seems to me there is a difference. Calvino believed that works of fantasy were a means of actually revealing a different aspect of the self or of the ego. It allowed um, access to the invisible, access, if you like, to what we now call post-Freud as the subconscious, something that could not be seen on the surface. Um, I don't think that's an interest at all of Rodari's. He's interested in the fantasy, the whimsy, the splendor of the imagination in itself, and there is a political dimension. The psychological element which fascinated Calvino is not, or I don't see it, it's not present in Rodari. That, that, seems, um, that seems true. Um... Mostly, we've mentioned the name Anthony uh, Sugar a few times uh, now, and that is because mostly, really, um, English language readers have him to thank, it seems, for um, for being able to read any uh, Gianni Rodari. And now there's the, the small New York-based press, Enchanted Lion, um, whose book, uh, Telephone Tales, they've just brought that out now in a translation by Anthony Sugar. Mm. But tell us about that one, because, I mean, it sounds really like the perfect introduction for those who aren't familiar with that. It is. Let me first of all pay my homage to Anthony Sugar. Um, I'm a translator too from Italian. I admire enormously what he's done, the fluency of his style, but also the fact that he's managed some of the most difficult tasks which a translator can face. That's to say that um, uh, Rodari is very linguistically inventive. He invents all kinds of words. He plays about with puns. He twists things about. Sugar has been remarkably successful in producing what I think I would describe as a parallel text rather than a straight translation. 
Of course he does a straight translation. But when he comes up against these linguistic idiosyncrasies, which, I mean, in some ways you can even um, parallel to James Joyce, um, the, these linguistic idiosyncrasies, he finds a very clever way of putting that uh, into English. This book, which is um, just being published, Telephone Tales, is once again a remarkable. It takes as a story an imaginary engineer or a salesman by the name of Mr. Bianchi, who travels about Italy, but he has a young daughter who insists on having a bedtime story every night, irrespective of where her father might actually be at that particular moment. You then get another particular part of Italian history. It used to be to make a phone call from a phone box in Italy, you had to use a special token. You didn't use money. You a gettone. A gettone, as it was, a token um, in English. So the story had to last uh, not any longer than the fixed time of the gettone, because if that fell, then you were cut off there and then. The stories are of different length, nevertheless. Some of them are very poetic. All, all of them are very imaginative, but they're all very, very limited in length. Just suitable, if you like, for Mr. Bianchi's daughter before she goes off to bed. Well, almost as though we're aware that Christmas is, is coming along soon. Uh, it sounds like a perfect present for someone small. Um, Joseph Farrell, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Joseph Farrell and Paul Griffiths. Thank you, as ever, for listening to the TLS podcast produced this week by Lee Meyer. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer budget-friendly flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment the plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals so for whatever tomorrow brings united healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you learn more at uh1.com